and welcome to the Security Ledger podcast. I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger, in this episode of the podcast number 229. How do you keep good people out of jail? How do we normalize that, that, you know, people like myself who enjoy thinking like criminals but have no desire or or actually have almost like an internal moral restriction on becoming one? When the first bugs for cash programs emerged almost two decades ago, they were controversial. Bug bounty programs like the one launched by iDefense Labs in 2002 or Tipping Point's Zero Day Initiative launched in 2005 were, at the time, accused of incentivizing the work of criminals and bad actors. Today, however, bug bounty programs are just part and parcel of the software industry. Fortune 500 companies, including Microsoft, Google, and Apple, all offer them, not to mention countless other software firms. In recent years, even old economy, industrial, and manufacturing firms like Ford, GM, and John Deere have gotten in on the act. On the flip side, many talented bug hunters and penetration testers can now make six-figure salaries or more finding and reporting flaws in software. But standing up a bug bounty program is no easy task, especially for companies that don't already have deep roots in the information security community. What does it take to stand up a bug bounty program these days? And what skills are in demand on the bug bounty marketplaces? To answer those questions, we invited Casey John Ellis into the studio. Casey is the founder and chief technology officer at Bug Crowd. In this conversation, Casey and I talk about the founding of Bug Crowd almost a decade ago and how the bug bounty market has changed in that time. We also talk about the surge in demand for bug bounty programs by both government and old economy firms that suddenly find themselves in the software publishing business. Finally, Casey and I talk about what it takes to be a successful bug hunter these days and what skills are most in demand on platforms like Bug Crowd. You may be surprised by what he has to say. To start off, I ask Casey to tell us a little bit about Bug Crowd. My name is Casey John Ellis. I am the founder, chairman, and CTO of Bug Crowd and a co-founder of the Disclose.io project. Casey, welcome to Security Ledger Podcast. Thanks for having me. So for our listeners, Casey, who don't know of Bug Crowd, and there probably aren't many of them, but um, tell tell them a little bit about uh, the company that you help found and uh, what you guys do. Yeah, for sure. So Bug Crowd is, is a crowdsourced security platform. Uh, you know, we basically pioneered the the idea of sitting in between, you know, all of the uh, the latent potential and, and the good things that exist, like the help that's available from from the uh, white hat hacker community, and and you know, increasingly like pen testers, security professionals, and so on around the world, and uh, you know, organizations that that basically need access to to as diverse a set of skills as possible to be able to outsmart the bad guys. That was that was really you know the problem that I. I wanted to solve um, when I started the company the fact that you know it's a like cybersecurity is kind of a human problem, right? And and there aren't enough humans to go around already on the defender side. Uh, meanwhile, we're trying to compete against this this crowd of, of adversaries that have lots of different skill sets, lots of different motivations, and and an incentive for success. So like the the math's kind of wrong with with how we've been doing a lot of this stuff in the past, from my perspective. And you know, I grew up as a as a hacker in school, then a pen tester, then solutions architect. And then I got it in my head, I wanted to be an entrepreneur. So I was looking at that problem and it was, it was bugging me because I could see that, you know, hackers were at the table wanting to help. Um, and, uh, you know, they just hadn't gotten the invite, um, nor had it been made easier for organizations to actually access their help. So 
that's sort of how you know bug crowd got started in the first place um since then obviously it's escalated quite a bit um you know, we're working in uh, in all sorts of different verticals. Um, you know, helping organisations run vulnerable disclosure programs, uh, actual bug bounty programs, as people would traditionally think of them. Uh, but then also things like crowdsourced and and outsourced penetration testing, uh, attack surface management, and so on. It's been ten years, I think. I think you, you Bug Crowd was founded in twenty eleven. What has changed in that time? You know, the main thing, almost as an umbrella concept, is that you know people care about cybersecurity in a different way now uh, than, than they did back then. Um, you know, I think it's it's a it's an issue of retail politics at this point. Uh, you know, you can you can go to Thanksgiving or or you know go to any kind of family event, and and you're getting asked by. By basically anyone around the table, um, you know about what this hacking thing means to them. Like, how can you help me not, you know, fall victim to to, to fraud or to, to getting hacked and so on? We're at a point now where the you know the average citizen is you know at, at the very least generally concerned about this this hacking thing. They might not know necessarily what it means or how it works or any of that kind of thing, but they know it's relevant to them. And and that's starting to influence, I think, um, you know, the the political layer. It's starting to influence. Uh, when I say starting to, it's actually that it started to happen, I, I think, probably about five or six years ago, and it's ramped up and become very obvious um, since then. So that's a, that's a big one. I think what that's driven and, and actually helped with, it's sort of bad news in some ways in terms of the, the cause for that, because I think it's mostly all of the breaches that have created that awareness. But what that's done is, is you know, basically increase the priority of cybersecurity and, and the understanding of it. For, for defenders, for people that, you know, write and deploy code, maintain systems and so on. And what that's all netted out to is, is you know, basically the advance and the evolution of what I'd like to call the unlikely romance, you know, this relationship between hackers and defenders. Because, you know, again, in 2011, most of the work that Bugcrowd had to do as, as the first mover in this space to actually intermediate this relationship and actually go out and promote it as a good thing is convince people that it wasn't a terrible, scary idea in the first place. Like that was the starting point. I do think that that idea that like a hacker can be a locksmith, we're not just burglars. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's pretty well established now, at least as a concept that people can access. It might not be the the pervasive thing that people immediately get in the, their mind when they hear the word hacker, but it's there as a framework to work with now, which is which is new and it's very good. I think. I mean, I know when you were starting out, that companies like yours and you personally probably had to spend a lot of time explaining to executives. There's so a lot. On. There's a lot of evangelism. Yeah, a lot of lot of explanation, a lot of evangelism, a lot of like demystifying and and all that sort of stuff. Like when you're talking about vulnerable discovery. This is it's an important thing I think for for hackers and security researchers to to understand especially the new ones that are getting into the game but it's good for defenders as well it's you know we're kind of a product of unintended consequence when you think about it and mm. you know having someone come up and call you call your baby ugly for the first time is a fa fairly confronting um, experience right it, it could even be seen as a threatening one so the fact mm -hmm. that this is a difficult conversation to get going if you're not already thinking in that direction as a defender, I think that's been, you know, a big part of really what's actually helped us do that. Um, basically cr trying to create as much empathy and as much understanding uh, of, of, you know, one side towards the other as we possibly can, and then demonstrating success, building trust around it, all those sorts of things. Do you, do you still find though that, that uh, actually awareness is not that great, that you're still you know, running into you know, companies, organizations who the, you know, the notion or the concept of a bug bounty program or vulnerability disclosure program is novel to them? 
Oh yeah, a hundred percent. I think the uh, we're we're at a point now where bug bounties, quote unquote, when when people hear that word, pretty much at this point in time, everyone has at least an idea of what they think it is, uh, and generally that idea is informed by a whole lot of noise, right? So you know you go you, you go out and you see like the, you know the OG like um, Facebook and Google, you know going out to the open uh, open internet and saying come at me bro and and, and I'll pay you. Um, that's not necessarily how it works for everyone, and you know a big part of what we did was to pl- with the platform was to make it as flexible as we possibly can to actually fit into the maturity level and the use cases that you know the customer wants wants solved. So when someone hears bug bounty, oftentimes they're like, "Whoa, hang on, that's not really for me." Um, and we've we've got to actually explain past that bit. Um, and you know, frankly, I think uh, public bug bounties in in the sense of of offering rewards. And actually incentivizing you know the entire internet to come in and do security research on a proactive basis that's probably not an accept like an appropriate solution for 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 most companies now on the other hand i do think vulnerability disclosure um is something that is just going to become a part it's gradually becoming i think a part of just how the internet works so everyone needs to be thinking about how they get in get into doing that and start to you know be proactive about preparing for it i do also think that everyone has a a you know, a, a security kind of knowledge shortage within their organization, um, you know, coming back to the uh, the origin kind of spiel that I gave at the start there. Can, can we talk about your story, your sort of origin story? Yeah, sure. What is the Casey John Ellis uh, story? How did, how did you get, find your way into the information security field? And uh, what got you to the point where you were like, you know what, I got an idea for a company? Yeah, for sure. Oh, I was born at a young age and... Uh, <laughs> Um, that's my my classic kind of that's my go-to kickoff for that bit um look i think there's 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 the hacker you know the the hacker phase of it the um the security professional phase of it and then the entrepreneur phase of it you know the the hacker phase was basically growing up then there's a bitter old man phase of it actually that's that's it then there's the then there's the the carmudgeon phase which we're like (laughs) betrayed by everybody we're we're testing the limits of that one right now i think uh because it's it's been it's been definitely an interesting couple of years with COVID and whatnot but you know rock and roll but yeah so basically my 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 father was a science teacher um yeah, both my parents are, are like creative and entrepreneurial. I just grew up really with with um, you know access to technology through through school uh, and and being you know encouraged to to, um, to you know just basically self teach, uh, get in, you know, understand how technology worked, you know, get to the point of mastery or of understanding where I could start to get it to do things that it wasn't necessarily meant to do in the first place, which. I, I see as kind of the fundamental kind of prototype DNA of, of what I consider to be a hacker um, across the board. It's less about what you're doing it for. It's more about, you know, your level of understanding and, and actually your desire to, to do something new, right? Um, so that's that's growing up. Um, then, you know, basically finishing high school, I, I kind of tripped over into a uh, into an IT uh, apprenticeship Um and, you know, during that time, um, kind of growing up, I'd been, you know, in IRC and, and, and doing that whole thing through, through that particular period, you know, learning learning about security and offense and stuff. Yeah, go on. Did, did that get you into any trouble when you were growing up? Like, because often, you know, that desire to sort of like, uh, you know, find out, you know, find different ways around things or do things in ways that are different than they're prescribed to be done. 
Um, you know, for many people who end up in information security, that can cause, can result in some bumps in the road along the way, particularly in adolescence. I wouldn't say it got me into trouble in, in, in the sense of, you know, the kind of trouble that I see people get in and need to avoid. Um, and even started to see at that point in time, I think, you know, probably the other part, and this is actually what informs my, my transition into security as a career is that I, I also had this like really, um, kind of nagging intrigue with, with, you know, criminal creativity. Uh, I enjoy, I, I enjoyed thinking like a criminal, but I had no desire to be one. So the, there's like this sort of ethical, ethical and moral kind of compass that, that was also fairly strong. I'm like, okay, I really enjoy thinking like a bad guy, but I don't want to do crime. So I'm not, not quite sure what I'm going to do with that, but let's just keep, you know, mucking around with computers and trying to get tech to do weird stuff. And we'll go from there. Actually, what happens, uh, you know, the kind of transition across uh, when I got married, my my wife and I had a chat at one point in time that I still remember quite vividly where she basically said, hey, you computer good, but you people good too. Um, not everyone can do that. You should you should try try hand out the front of the house in like solutions and sales and see, see how you feel about business, um, which I thought, you know, that sounds like an interesting thing to, to just learn from and, and have a go at. Uh, and it worked. And, you know, at that point in time, I, I realized that I, I loved business. I actually consider it, you know, in some ways like entrepreneurship and solutioneering as an extension of, of some of the stuff and, and the thinking that I kind of picked up as a, as a pen tester and a hacker prior to that. And um, yeah, eventually all of this stuff kind of, you know, got together and conspired. I got it into my head that I wanted to be an entrepreneur and basically, you know, bug crowds, the eventual product of that did a couple of things beforehand. And, uh, you know, this one kicked off and off it went from there. When you were kind of surveying the landscape, you know, thinking, you know, I might want to start a company and trying to figure out what that would be. Um, were, were there other, I mean, I know like um, uh, ZDI, you know, uh, started up a good few years before Bug Crowd and HackerOne and some of the other bug bounty programs. What did the landscape look to you like at that point? Um, and why did you decide, you know, this, this is what I want to do? Yeah, for sure. The so the precursor uh, business to to Bug Crowd was actually like a white labeled security testing company. So so there was you know a lot of opportunity in Australia, and and you know I was connected with with the right people to be able to basically sell security assessment services through companies that um, had the opportunity to sell it. Um, but didn't have the people to actually do the work. Like so MSSPs and consultancies and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. So you yeah. can see how that's kind of a prototype for Bug Crowd. One of the things that, that was that was you know great about that business was it was kind of a lifestyle thing in a lot of ways. Like we did really good work, but it wasn't, you know, there was just so much to go around and it was so easy to basically deliver um, with with the kind of network that I had at that point. It's like okay, this is great. This is this is a you know good time to be doing this type of thing. But that's kind of where the idea for for bug crowd started to bother me, right? It's like yeah, one person being paid by the hour is never going to be able to compete with 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 what what they're up against. Um, and you know, I think one of my favorite definitions of founder is is someone who gets like irrationally pissed off about something they think they can solve. <laughs> Uh, um, I totally agree and, with you. That is, and that's and that's and that started to happen. I I ended up yes. with this niggle where it's like, no, I think I think there's I think there are solutions to this. This is a this is a, a resourcing and economic asymmetry problem, and there's incredible resource available 
out there that's untapped? How do you, you know, identify latent potential, connect it to unmet demand and try to get a win for everyone who's involved in the process? So that was, that was really how, you know, the thinking that was going on with, with Bug Crowd. I started to introduce gamification into, you know, the precursor company. But eventually, the kind of the founding kind of moment in, in some ways for Bug Crowd was um, a business trip I took talking to a bunch of organizations here in Australia. And at the time, you know, Google and Facebook had started making a bunch of noise about their, their VRP. Uh, everyone wanted to talk about it. And, you know, I'd been sort of digging into this whole gamification aspect and so on. You know, I started asking folks, like, why aren't you doing it? Like, uh, if it's as easy as putting a page up on your website and opening up an email inbox, like, what would stop you from just going off and doing that and everyone said the same thing it's like yep hackers are scary you know i don't yeah. know how to pay someone in uzbekistan my team's busy enough as it is without having to you know try to find a way to listen to the entire internet and figure out what's true and false like there was mm -hmm. this list of list of things that they all said yeah. and it was actually on the, the flight home from melbourne where the light bulb went off when it's like oh hang on that was actually a fairly narrow list of things that need to be solved to actually enable what i was starting to see at that point almost as the future of work right uh and and that's really where bug crowd was born like then you know came up with the name on that flight uh, came up with our initial crowdsource pen testing you know incentive model actually like jumps in the car and drove home because this is before in-flight wi-fi uh, <laughs> I see lots of cocktail napkins with like scribbling on them. There was literally a cocktail. It was over a, 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 a crown lager and a can of Pringles and there was a napkin involved. <laughs> like, true story. So <laughs> yeah, that's, that's kind of how it all got going. Yeah. And the other thing that's um, worth mentioning is, is just this idea of like, how do you keep good people out of jail? How do we actually, how do we normalize the fact that, that, you know, people that um, like myself who enjoy thinking like criminals, but have no desire or, or actually have almost like an internal moral restriction on becoming one. Um, how do we keep them out of jail and actually, you know, reduce the chilling effect that exists over, over, you know, people like that being able to get better at what they do, do the things they love, but also actually contribute to the, to the safety of the internet itself. So those were kind of the two things that I was trying to try to balance and, and solve and bug crowd got me a win-win. So off we went. For, just for our listeners, like if they were a prospective bug hunter and um, were wanted to sign up at Bug Crowd, what would they need to do? And then what, what would they gain access to by virtue of signing up? Yeah, for sure. So basically, if you just go to bugcrowd.com, there's, there's a sign up um, in, in the, uh, the top right. Pretty much you sign up on the website, you know, create for yourself an account. You know, at that point in time, you pretty much, um, you know, get access to the public programs that don't have any kind of trust restriction on them, right? So what, what we do is um, when you, like when you think about the people that are the hunters on the platform, there's the spectrum of, of basically trust that we apply to them. Um, and then what we also try to do is understand what kind of skills they have over time. So, you know, that, that spectrum of trust I was talking about goes from someone who's just completely, you know, random and new, walks in off the internet, signs up. They'll only get access to programs where the customer has the program set up in a way that doesn't require, you know, any kind of vetting or, or you know, attestation of, of you know, prior skill or, or that kind of thing, if that makes sense. So, like, public vulnerability disclosure programs, public bug bounty programs, that sort of thing, it's basically open to the to the general internet anyway. Um, and that's that's the starting point. But then over time, what happens is, you know, there's the opportunity to, to connect in different accounts. 
to help us understand, um, you know, what kind of you know languages do you know how to code in, for example? Like, what are the different technology skill sets that you've got? Um, you know, what are some of the other things that you've done from from a, a vulnerability, you know, discovery or even you know security research standpoint? Uh, and we're ingesting that into into what we call CrowdGraph, um, and what that starts to do is to match skills with particular needs that that exist on the customer side. So, like when we're getting into you know stuff that's a little bit more uh, like uncommon, you know, automotive hacking, for example, um, getting into like source code analysis, attacking mainframes, getting into critical infrastructure, things that aren't just a kind of a website and an IP address sitting out in the cloud, right? Because that's hard too, but it's also easy to access. It's easy to learn. There's a lot of people that know those things. So what we also want to understand is who can do the things that are less common um, such that we can match them to programs. And then it just kind of goes on from there, like right up to you know a program that we did for the Air Force where it was basically the uh, cloud compute environment. But you know that was that was going through like source code analysis in a in a you know restricted like compartmentalized environment. Um, there was all sorts of different skills that we had to bring into that engagement. And there was a pretty high burden of trust because of the nature of the stuff that we were testing. Um, like that's at the top of the pyramid. So, so yeah, I mean, you mentioned the Air Force. I mean, BugCrowd has actually done a, fa- a fair amount of work with the federal government and the federal government's attitudes on these types of programs and initiatives has really done a 180 in the past three or four years, particularly with the leadership of, of CISA. Talk just a little bit about your work with the U.S. federal government and then also, you know, if you're doing work with other governments around the world in Australia, Europe, uh, so on. It was really a watershed moment for the space just in general, um, you know, let alone Bug Crowd, the, uh, the Hack the Pentagon program uh, with, with the DOD in, in 2014 or 2015 was when that, that kicked off and was announced. It feels like a million years ago and yesterday all at the same time. Yeah, the thing that happened at that point in time is, is pretty much the entire... I think Western uh, market um, governments and corporate, you know, they they were probably looking at this, you know, starting to look at this concept, saying, "Oh, that's interesting. Like, is that something that we should do?" It was more of an if question. Once the Pentagon came out and said, "Yeah, you know what? We need help from the hacker community because even as you know, like the apex defender and predator, pretty much on the planet, um, we're actually needing some help to make sure our our you know information systems are, are, are secure." That was a pretty, I think, profound you know, validation of the problem to, to everyone. And it also spoke really strongly to the level of trust that's actually available in this model. So at that point in time, I think you know, a lot of folk went from if to like when and how, at least when it comes to things like VDP or even you know, private crowdsourcing, right? The other piece with, with the US government, um, and this is, this is more closely related to Disclose.io, uh, was just getting quite heavily involved in, in election security. Um, that actually kicked off in 2018 with a with a set of things around the uh, the House Rules Committee on the Hill, and pretty much the question was like, how do white hat hackers help you know secure really the the kind of mechanics of democracy itself um, heading into 2020 and, and and beyond, which turned out to be a pretty important question, right? Um, what we, what we did there was to basically help with, with, you know, evangelizing it, you know, getting all that sort of stuff together, but also to be able to, um, put together boilerplate language, uh, which included things like safe harbor for, for security researchers. So they understand that, yeah, if you try to help out here, you're not going to get your door kicked in as long as you're not being overtly criminal. 
um, all of those things fitting into that, you know, the reason I, I actually got pretty gripped, frankly, by that problem, aside from being a fan of democracy, um, is that, you know, it, it was as much a uh, information warfare and, and a, a confidence issue, uh, a transparency issue, as it was one of, of vulnerabilities and systems themselves. So VDP became this thing that was, you know, potentially useful to, to be able to explain to the layperson when they're asking about the integrity of election systems. It's like, hey, here's Neighborhood Watch for the internet. We're running that on these things. Um, that doesn't necessarily imply that those things are perfect, but it should give you at least some better degree of confidence that we're trying to you know, make it as secure and transparent as we possibly can. Uh, so, I mean, in addition to the federal government, Casey, I mean, Bug Crowd works increasingly with a lot of what I would consider sort of non-traditional industries, non-IT uh, industries, where this whole concept of vulnerability disclosure, bug hunting, you know, software security is fairly new. You know, they're they're exploring connected products or they're coming out with generations of software-driven products. Um, talk just a little bit about some of the changes that, you, that you've seen there in terms of adoption and, and interest in um, this type of offering. One of the first things that we wanted to do you know, after we, um, like the, the napkin moment before, um, you know, going off actually getting into an accelerator program here in Australia called Startmate, which I think is the most Australian name for anything ever. Um, <laughs> it's got the mate in there and it's got the, the R that confuses everyone. So it's, it's uh, <laughs> um, you know, we, we did that, uh, at that, at that point in time, we had, we had basically proof that, um, the solution worked. We, you know, had a, had a couple of thousand hackers sign up. Um, we had a lot of people actually come in on on the uh, on the customer side and and basically, you know, buy what wasn't even a platform at that point in time. It was just a list of people in a process, and we were basically working out, you know, what do we need to actually put together in code to to run this. Um, what was what was you know blatantly obvious, I think, at that point from from a startup and a venture standpoint, is that yeah, there's there's definitely some massive pain here. And um, this is a problem that can, this is a solution that can potentially address that pain. So, you know, as a startup, when, when you prove that thing, it, you're kind of off to the races at that point. And um, yeah, we went over to San Francisco, basically moved over, raised around. And, you know, I spent the, the rest of 2013, that was working out how to immigrate. Um, but in, in the meantime of, of doing that, um, you know, the thing that I wanted to do and, and that we, you know, collectively wanted to do was to make sure that we jumped out of the Bay Area kind of sandpit, right? Like how, how quickly can we prove that this isn't just a, you know, a crazy Bay Area technology company thing to do? Um, because, you know, Facebook, Google, like those folks that were kind of leading it, they're awesome. And, and I think they're often looked to, they definitely were at the time um, in, in a big way for, for technology leadership. But they're also, I think, seen as kind of crazy by, by a lot of, you know, other more conservative parts of the industry. So it's like, how can we jump the tracks and make sure that we're actually delivering and then basically rebroadcasting proof that this is not just a tech company thing. Um, so Western Union was was probably the uh, the first example where, where we had the opportunity to do that. Um, they actually had, at the time, uh, a, a very progressive digital transformation group. Um, so, you know, actually working with them was was probably easier than it looked from the outside. Uh, the thing is that it's it's Western Union. Like, this, this is a company that's probably older than the US itself, right? Like you don't necessarily expect them to be jumping in and doing something like this. So it was really a matter of, of basically building out proof and, and increasing that proof in different verticals to say, hey, this is a solution for conservative markets, not just 
you know, bleeding edge progressive ones. Um, and it kind of escalated from there. So, you know, the automotive industry was, was another really interesting one. Um, when, when Charlie and, and Chris did their thing at DEF CON, uh, and you know, there was kind of this collective like inhale moment in, Holy in the automotive crap. industry. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Around, yeah. Oh, wait, we've put the internet inside a car, but that violates the, uh, the, you know, the network trust model that we've had in cars for the past 40 years. Like we should probably get on with doing something about that because when autonomous vehicles hit, um, as an, as a, as a concept in market, there's going to be a fundamental trust issue that we have to you know, be ahead of solving. Plus also like, let's make the cars safe, right? There, there was all sorts of things happening there. So they jumped in pretty quickly um, and, and, you know, to their credit, um, got very proactive around, you know, soliciting uh, researcher input and so on. And from there, it's gone out into all of these kind of so automotive, like a- aviation, um, you know, the medical device um, sector, uh, you know, we're working on the policy side, working with FDA to help them put together their post-market cybersecurity guidance. This is back in 2020. 15, 2016. And it's continued to progress like that, I think. You know what surprises me though? Like, can I be honest? Like when you talk about automotive, like Charlie and Chris and and the the Jeep Cherokee hack, which was, you know, the sort of, oh my God moment. But what really shocks me is the evidence from the outside that these security conversations aren't happening internally. Because as as you probably know, a couple of years before they did the Cherokee hack, they did a Toyota Prius hack that was basically the same thing. It's just, it was, it was a wired, you know, connection. It was the, you know, onboard diagnostic port that they plugged into and did the software based takeover. Right. And, and the industry was like, well, I mean, you know, that's not a big deal because they were in the passenger, you know, they were in the compartment, you know, they were sitting in the car. So our security model is still basically intact yet. Nobody at the corporate level, there wasn't the recognition of like, well, yeah, but you know, this year's model has a cellular modem in it, <laughs> or ne- or we know next year's model is going to ship with a cellular modem in it, and therefore, you you get to the point where Charlie and Chris got, which is you can do a you know wireless over the air you know version of that attack, but like that conversation didn't happen. And then, similarly, I mean, that was 2015, right? And we can talk mm-hmm. shit about Deer because they're using Hacker One. So, you know, a company like Deer that makes agricultural equipment didn't look in 2015 and say, huh, you know, we're really moving towards having, you know, real time, always on internet connection for our ag equipment. Here are these two dudes hacking Jeep Cherokees. Hmm. That's kind of a similar problem. The one we're going to have. So we should probably engage with them, you know, or engage with that community, but like it doesn't happen. And it just, it just like blows me away. Like how can these conversations not be taking place or it not, not, and we're not only not taking place, but not actually getting escalated. Right. Yeah. Not, not to speak directly to, to any of the folk involved there, but you know, one of the, one of the, uh, like you don't necessarily lock your front door unless you've become aware that you're in a neighborhood where that's absolutely something that you should do. Um, you know, you don't put bars on your windows unless you're broken into or all your neighbors have them. Um, you know, this, this sort of concept of, of there needing to be, you know, negative events, um, or in lieu of that, I think regulation or consumer pressure, like those are the three things that I think can actually get, get this ball rolling. But in the absence of those things, people don't tend to be proactive about about doing this stuff well, because it's not their core business. Like what they're trying to do is make a thing work, right? 
So it's it's interesting because I, I kind of I go back and forth between you know being quiet and patient with with that I think as a lot of people in security can can get when you see it being done badly, but at the same time having empathy for for why that's the situation in the first place. Um, and then really what it comes back to is, okay, what now? Like, how, how do you, how do you, how do you improve that? Right. Like with, with Disclosio, with Disclosio and with VDP in particular, that's open source. And, and like the goal there is to basically just put this stuff in the hands of as many people as possible. Um, you know, Bugcrack can help people run these programs, but Disclosio is really, you know, designed to guide and standardize how people adopt it and just make it as frictionless as, as we can. And the, the idea behind that is that, um, you know, to, to err is human, like this idea of like, I need to actually give people a way to tell me when something's broken in the first place for most organizations is not necessarily a thought process they've, they've gone through yet. Um, and I think that's part of the key. If you can be proactive about it, then all of a sudden you're in a better position. So you brought up Disclose.io. That was my next question. Um, oh, yeah, for sure. uh, explain a little bit what Disclose.io is for the listeners. Yeah, sure. So Disclose.io is is a you know vulnerability disclosure effectively standardization project. Um, it's a set of open source tools uh, in, in all sorts of different domains, but the primary one is is basically making boilerplate um, policy language uh, that's easy to read for for you know hunters, um, even hunters that aren't lawyers and hunters that aren't English as a first language. Because that's a that's a pretty difficult problem to solve, like trying to make something legally complete and understandable at the same time, um, but also that contains you know safe harbor and and carve outs uh, against things like you know the CFAA and and DMCA in 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 the US to make sure that um, you know security researchers are able to feel like they're safe. They're not you know self incriminating by by sending an issue across. They're not you know self incriminating or breaking the law by doing security research in good faith in the first place, like making sure that all of those things are packaged up as, as neatly as possible. And, you know, the goal is really to make life easier for, for the legal teams. Um, oftentimes, um, you know, it, this is the first time a legal team would be putting something like this together as a policy. And when lawyers get nervous, they tend to get verbose, um, which makes the whole thing just, you know, difficult to understand on the, uh, on the hunter side, but also, you know, legally more, more risky. So Disclose.io is, is bringing in, um, you know, input from, from academics, from, from legislators, from, you know, people that run programs and have evolved those things over time into this, this boilerplate language. Uh, and then beyond that, it's, it's really all about, you know, what can we do to actually make it frictionless? So there's a community for people to connect um, if they're trying to reach out to find the right contact. Um, you know, when that happens, you know, I'm, I'm one of probably a, you know, dozen people that just always gets the phone call it's like i'm trying to get this vulnerability to this particular organization and they're not responsive or i can't see how to do that you know the the forum is actually you know intended to try to crowdsource that process um and then and then the policymaker itself uh which is which is basically a web app that um, helps people configure their, their vulnerability disclosure programs uh, or their policy rather uh, and, it, and it does it in a way that actually tries to lead them towards best practice that's that's really what it's about like let's standardize and then let's drive excellence in, in how people do this and actually use that to create this this positive reinforcement that that drives adoption so at that point you know going back to what we were just talking about it becomes less about something bad happened i feel like i'm responding to a stick it's more yeah it's a it's a carrot not a stick to do it well so you know safe harbor with with a coordinated vulnerability disclosure timeline like that to me is is pretty much the top of the 
top of the, the tier at this point. Um, but you know, if you're not ready as an organization to implement a proactive CVD, then still having safe harbor in your in your VDP language is is a pretty good thing. Like most people aren't doing that, right? So you end up with this sort of pyramid of of you know ladder of success or however you want to think about it that actually drives people to want to improve. How do you how do you measure what's a secure what's a successful bug bounty program, you know, on your platform? And do you worry that some companies sort of use you know, platforms like BugCrowd to security wash, basically to, you know, make a gesture to make it look like they're serious about, you know, product security or what have you, when in reality, you know, they're not really putting the resources and attention towards it that will make it a, a meaningful program. It's really just a, a little bit of a show. Yeah, for sure. With, with you know, how we measure a successful program, it's it's responsiveness and, and it's really, you know, how like re reliably and how consistently the program owner basically meets the commitments they've made in, in the brief of the program itself. So, you know, the idea, and obviously we sit in the middle of that, like what, what we've built out as a, as a company, aside from all of the data that, that sits underneath it is these workflows that, um, that make all of that stuff as easy as possible, like reminders and, and, and whatnot. Um, but also, you know, making sure that the information is consumable and, and gets to the right place. We've also got a decent sized operations team. It's actually, you know, a lot larger than than you'd expect for for a SaaS company of of our size, because when you have to jump in and basically deconflict, um, you know, a, a, a vulnerability report that's difficult to understand, or there's an argument around whether it's valid or not, like those sorts of things, um, that takes people. So, uh, you know, those are some of the ways that we sit in the middle to to try to basically make programs as successful as possible, but also mitigate the the risk of what you were just talking about with, with security washing. You know, it is a, it is definitely a thing. Um, you know, we, we, we observed that quite early on in, in the piece. And we, that was one of the reasons that we like built out this team uh, to, to be able to basically, you know, make sure that everything's fair um, and, 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 and things are kind of balanced between, because it can't lean all the way over to the researchers because, the business isn't in the business of, of just getting hacked and paying for it, right? But it can't lean all the way over to the businesses because then, you know, the researchers kind of get screwed in the process. So our, our job is to try to keep it as close to the middle as possible um, and defend that. And yeah, it's it's a it, that's been a really interesting journey because I think um, I think we're good at it. I think we've got a reputation for it, and there's a lot of trust around you know Bug Crowd as a, as an organization to to help make that work well. Um, it's not always 100% perfect for us, but every time there's something that happens, we learn from it and, and improve. Um, and, and we've just continuously done that. I think in the space in general, there's still a, you know, a lack of standardization and, and norms that can kind of make it easier to spot like what might not be a good thing and how to correct it. Um, but you know, as, as this whole space evolves, I think that's, that's becoming more obvious and more clear. What, what are some of the not good things that you're worried about? you know, setting expectations, like aligning expectations before you, you get a report, like that's the, mm -hmm. that's the ideal and the most important mm -hmm. thing mm -hmm. for, for an organization to do. And that, that can take time, right? Like if you, if you're going, if you security washing, as you, as you called it before, then like, you just want to get in TechCrunch next week. So you're not necessarily going to put the time into to thinking about, you know, what happens to the vulnerability after it, it enters the organization. Like what's the remediation pipeline? Like what's our time to remediate in this product versus that product? 
you know, all of those different things that happen downstream. Um, you've got to at least put some thought into that. And, and I think uh, a lot of, you know, what we advocate and what we see people talk about um, is this idea of like crawl, then walk, then run. You don't jump straight into a public bug bounty program with a huge limit because you're going to, you're not going to be ready for it. Like you don't necessarily know how that behaves yet. So how do you, you know, partner with someone like bug crowd who can, who can basically take from our experience to help you set up as successfully as possible from the get go, but then continue to learn and, and expands and, and actually evolve your security program, not just your bounty program. Okay. So for our listeners who might be working at organizations that maybe are toying with the idea of starting a bug bounty program, what is your recommendation to them? How do they uh, crawl, walk, run, or maybe they're ready to start running or maybe they're ready to start out walking, but how, how yeah, do you yeah, yeah. advice and to them? And that's a good call out because you know some, some organizations are ready. Uh, you know, I, I definitely tend to err on the side of, hey, like, wait a sec, have you thought this through? Um, because this idea of, of it being a topical way to talk about security, it makes it very attractive and something that people often want to do quickly. So that's, that's you know, why I'll normally go into that conversation with the brakes on. But if you're ready for it, then you're ready for it. And that's, that's great. Um, you know, in terms of a general crawl, walk, run, I think, uh, you know, launching, launching a vulnerability disclosure program without promoting it or, you know, creating a whole bunch of fanfare to begin with, like putting out your security.txt, putting out a DNS security.txt record, opening up a, an intake channel and, and publishing a policy somewhere. Um, I think that's, that's crawl from, from my perspective. Alongside that, you can start to look into, you know, things that, that bug crowd does with, with private bug bounty programs and private crowdsourcing. And at that point you start to be able to engage with like, how vulnerable am I actually when, when I ask this question of, you know, where are my bugs to, to a diverse and a broad group of people. Um, and then from there, you basically dial that private stuff up uh, and until it's at the point where you can start to offer rewards on a public basis. And, and that to me is, you know, the, the, the moment of launch of a, of a bug bounty program, so to speak. Um, Final question. Um, what are the, what are the interesting hot trends right now, uh, just out on the bug crowd platform or in the, you know, bug hunting community in general, any particular platform skills that are particularly in demand right now? Yeah, so you know, folks, folks that understand and, and can operate uh, around what the the market or the industry would would consider penetration testing, um, and, and all the things that go up into that, um, you know, that that goes more to like trust, um, but is also very much a skill thing. You know, the big thing we've seen with with COVID, uh, you know, there's there's definitely some shifts in in thinking around you know work from home. And just general trust in the idea of getting input from people that don't sit inside the four walls of an organization that's taken quite a quite a big knock you know i feel like covid covid's kind of the great zero trust experiment in a lot of ways um but it's also i think forced a lot of um you know stuck thinking around like what the future of technology the future of work the future of labor the future of access to talent um looks like yeah, people just weren't necessarily comfortable and holding those things back, but then we all kind of got crammed over the hill at the same time. So, so we're doing a lot of pen testing uh, it, and, and things that people consider as, as a pen test. So, you know, private crowdsourcing, private one-to-one -one pen testing, um, you know, compliance-driven testing where, you know, the results go to an auditor, 
like different things like that. Things that, you know, folk wouldn't necessarily equate to a bug bounty platform, quote unquote, but that's, that's an area of, of really high growth for us right now. Um, and we expect that to continue. I think that's also because we, we did a lot of digital transformation in a hurry on the defender side as well. So there's a lot of stuff that needs basically looking at at the moment. Um, skills wise, you know, folks that can code, uh, you know, folks that have, have an engineering background, um, you know, people that come in, I mean, my, my favorite hunters for, for corporate stuff, uh, are the ones that actually come in from, you know, an, an IT engineering or an IT deployment background, but have that like rascal kind of golden eye thing that I was talking about before, where it's, they, they kind of want to see behind the locked door and they've, they've been noodling with security and offensive security pretty much their entire career. They've just never necessarily made a career out of it. Um, those folk end up being really good oftentimes um, and, and they understand the context of what the builders are trying to do. So that they can actually relate and um, yeah. you know, communicate. They, they, they sat in both seats. Yeah, right. Yeah, they got, they've got kind of a shortcut on that part. But then on the product side, you know, it's like IoT is still nuts and, and continuing to get more nuts, um, you know, embedded device security, like ecosystem security. So folks that understand, um, you know, multiple aspects of how like an embedded device might exist within an ecosystem with a mobile app and a, you know, API backends and web apps and, and, and different things like that. Um, folks that understand that stuff uh, are pretty key. Um, 5G is, is coming out as something that people, you know, want to have a lot of, a lot of testing on because it's starting to roll out into, into a bunch of different products. Um, I'm, I'm always looking for COBOL um, folk because <laughs> yeah. Still it's lots just of fun. That, right? It's yeah. just fun to do that. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I, I literally spoke at a, uh, at a, at a conference in, in India um, at the beginning of the year and said, Hey, don't go, don't go learning, you know, rust or like whatever, like language de jure from, from a security standpoint, like go back and look at like COBOL and, you know, ASP.net and, and Java. Cause like that yeah. shit's going to be around after the death yeah. of the universe. And, and all the people that were experts in it, in their day are starting to basically retire. <clears throat> Or, or actually age out, so there's there's actually a, yeah. a gap forming around that type of that type of skill set. Yeah. So those are some hot tips for the for the folk that are looking to upskill. Yeah, I know the U.S. government always like releases a report of like the oldest applications and hardware that the government still operates, and it's it's a you know shocking. <laughs> you yeah, know? Well, it's, it's it's not well, it's not too different in corporate as well. Yeah. I think there's yeah. You know, COVID COVID's definitely prompted a lot of like workload transformation up into the cloud. So. Yeah, there's there's stuff that was like a three year timeline project to get off a old mainframe or whatever, um, and and get a workload up into the cloud um, that got accelerated by by you know COVID and the changes in how people consume and work, right? But that stuff is still going to kick around basically forever. So that's a um, that's something that I think is is kind of an underrated uh, skill to look into, you know, learning. Are there folks who are making their living off of bug crowd? Yeah, there are, there are, and I think that's going to continue. You know, part of what we've been doing with with the the pen testing side of things is is work working on different models where, you know, basically we can remove as much of the kind of liquidity um, mm -hmm. consideration for for people on the supply side as we possibly can. So it's like, okay, mm -hmm. you've got to be able to do the work and and you know be good at what you do and all that kind of stuff, but 
you also you know want to be able to keep the lights on like how can we make that as as predictable and reliable for you as possible it's partly hmm. in the models of how we deliver it but you know some of the stuff that we've done from a data and a technology standpoint to actually help uh, is it, us, so are you talking about like having retainers and things or is it more like like sort of providing them with with like a, a certain income and then or or what do you mean yeah, it, it, combination combination of retainers across you know certain types yeah. of programs that we run, but okay. then also like helping them connect, you know, more effectively and actually basically maximize their time. Like here, here are yeah. the things that 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 are perfect for you that you're going to be able to go in and crush, um, and and you can actually use that information to invest your time more effectively as a as a hunter. Got it. Hey, Casey Johnells, CTO of BugCrowd, thank you so much for coming in and speaking to us on Security Ledger Podcast. Thank you for having me. Cheers. Casey John Ellis is the Chief Technology Officer and Founder of Bugcraft.